From 87 Lafayette, it's Coronapod. I'm Matt. And I'm Adam. Come on, Adam. Stop doing work. You're letting the man get you down. You're doing too much capitalism these days. You gotta pay attention to the podcast. All right. Listeners, here it is. Laptop shut. Oh, I love that sound at the end of the night. Such a good feeling. Yeah. How are you feeling? Honestly, I'm feeling great. I got a good kid working for me. He just, I think, cracked this thing wide open. I mean, I goofed a little when I, you know, ordered some stuff last week and I'm now dealing with the ramifications of my hasty restaurant supply order, but Mm. I'm excited to finish the podcast and uh, climb into bed with my book and try to try to crush some of it. What are you reading? Pachinko. Ah, love Pachinko. Honestly, I thought the end Don't. was better than the beginning. That's all I'll say. Ooh. Ooh, I'm happy with it. I didn't love the beginning. Loved the end. I read Pachinko. Actually, uh, you know, normally I do not read any books on Kindle, but I read Pachinko on a Kindle when I spent a month in Africa between working, between jobs. And uh, I read Pachinko when I was in Morocco because I ended up in Morocco for more days than I'd intended to because of a canceled flight. Anyway, it's a long story. But I spent about three days in Morocco at this country club where you could buy a day pass. And it was the only place in Marrakesh with a beautiful pool. It was like 30 bucks a day. And so I would take a taxi outside the city and it was this beautiful place called the Beldi Country Club. If you're ever going to Marrakesh, I cannot recommend it highly enough, Beldi Country Club. And I have extremely fond memories of lounging by the pool, reading Pachinko. You know, I also spent some time in Africa. You did. Much more time than me. Uh, but other side of the continent. So, how are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I feel like you got some, some, some news. Some news. Yeah, about news. about what your summer might look like. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, so I heard from my employer that we are not going back into the office until <gasps> September 8th, which is a really long time It's from a now. Tuesday. It's, it's a Tuesday, yes. Uh, <laughs> and today's Tuesday. Today's Tuesday, we can figure out exactly how, how many, many weeks, weeks it is. <laughs> It's four months, really long time. They they did say it's possible people may be able to go back voluntarily before then, um, but it's unlikely. The earliest anyone's going to have to come back is September 8th, really long time from now. It's a little daunting. I'm very fortunate because um, my family is in Nantucket, which is a lovely place, and I'm heading there this weekend, and so it'll be nice to basically spend the summer there, as far as I can tell. Um... But nevertheless, you know, I miss my coworkers. Like I miss having, you know, drive-bys with my coworkers. My boss is a big drive-by kind of guy. You know, we often end up like having 90-minute conversations at the end of the day when he's on his way out and then we start to chat. And I miss that and you just don't have that spontaneity. And um, it's crazy to think that it will have been six months not at the office. And honestly, I'm wishing I'd taken some more stuff from my desk when I left. 
I left a few shoes under my desk that are going to be very, very dusty by the time I get there. I left my suit in the office. Hmm. My suit, my shoes, and most importantly, my over-ear headphones. Oh. That, that, that one really, oh, that really hurts. That really hurts. Yeah, that, that But you know, good. I, I don't think I'm going to need my suit in the, over the summer. The, the only thing you might need is the top half of your suit. That's true. That's true. The one wedding I was supposed to go to has been canceled, so. I was on a very awkward Zoom call yesterday or hangout, whatever, with a lot of people because um, I, I work at the Times and the Pulitzers were announced yesterday. And so they did a big call for the or Zoom thing for the whole company in lieu of the big gathering that normally takes place on Pulitzer Day. And one of the people who was talking was wearing a suit, but he referenced wearing the top half of his suit. And I was like, I really wonder what the bottom, the bottom, half, what the bottom half is these days. Yeah. I will say one, one top half story, college story. So, you know, good transition to our guest who's mm-hmm. a, a college friend of yours. I had to take my graduation photo and I only wore the top half of a suit. So I wore a shirt, a tie, and a jacket and shorts and I figured it's the middle of the day in Cambridge. I won't run into anyone I know or anyone important. And I ran into... Drew Gilpin Faust. No, I, I ran into my grandpa who did not think it was nearly as funny as I did. You know, you probably looked like a real frat star. You didn't have the lax bro hair at the time, but the jacket tie and shorts is a real frat star look. Very concerning. With the hair, you'd really compliment it out. Anyway, let's go to our guest, my good friend Alec. Hello, and welcome to CoronaPod. <laughs> welcome to the show, Alec. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. We're delighted to have you. Uh, I think you are probably the tallest person to come on CoronaPod. Other than Bill de Blasio. No, but we didn't have Bill. We only had his press secretary. That's a good point. Played by... You guys said... Okay. Well... Okay. You didn't actually have Bill de Blasio's press secretary. I mean, it would be incredible. It, it, it was incredible. It was unfortunately not his actual press secretary. It was actually Alec, our, uh, our sweet mate, Zach, who, uh, you know, is, is a real improv, improv genius. Um, you know, given, given how de Blasio has been, been, seems to have done so far during this whole mess, he could maybe use Zach as his press secretary. Um, just, you know, some people who can, you know, just, Give him any positive press at all. Well, look, look, here's what I'll say, and then let's get off this topic. The people who work for Bill de Blasio are great people, and I just feel so bad that they're stuck with such an incompetent boss. I do not fault people who work for him. Very fair. Very fair. Maybe I should, but I don't yet. Alec, you do not want to get us on the topic of de Blasio. Anyway, so... uh, We're going to go down a rabbit hole. So let's, let's go to you. Alec, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a grad student. You're a scientist, uh, but maybe tell our listeners, you know, what what you work on and, and what you're up to these days. Sure. So I am doing a PhD in ecology and evolutionary biology at Princeton. I am in my second year, um, and the basic way that I would explain the my my thesis is that I am 
studying why different species have different uh, differences in their immune systems, in the immune responses that they create, um, in the sort of immune defenses that they have in preparation for infection, um, how sensitive their immune systems are, how much they tolerate infections, all those sorts of things. Um, and I'm particularly interested in how something that's called life history affects immune defense. And life history is basically the study of the demography of these species and uh, when they have offspring, how many offspring they have, when they become reproductively mature. Um, so a lot of things like that. Um, and uh, since it's ecology and evolutionary biology, we look at this not necessarily in humans, um, but we do a lot of work in my lab in uh, several different species. Um, my thesis involves some work on mice and some work on uh, pinnipeds, which are seals and sea lions, um, or will hopefully involve pinnipeds, although that's up in the air for COVID-related reasons. Um, and uh, right now, I'm actually less than, just under uh, a week away. I, a week from today, in the afternoon, is my general exam, which is a basically sort of a big exam that I have with uh, some people to sort of before I proceed to really the, the bulk of the research. So that's that's what I do. Um, naturally, this is intersected with coronavirus in some ways, although not as much for me as for some of my friends here. Um, but it's been it's been interesting to be on the on the sidelines. So help me understand this a little bit. Are you comparing the immune response of like seals and sea lions to mice, or are you looking at why does this one population of mice differ from this other population? So is it within a species or are multiple species susceptible to the same pathogens and therefore develop immune responses differently between, you know? Right. So, so, we're more, so we're more doing the, the, the latter. So we're not doing a direct comparison of mice to, to see what to uh, seals, uh, although in principle you could if you wanted to, but we're not going to um, because there's a whole bunch of things going on there. But um, but uh, so the the idea is, is that we're sort of looking for general principles that would apply not just across all animals but across all organisms. Um, but we do most of the study in in animals, and so um, we'll be looking at how mice differ sort of differ in their immune systems from each other, so variation within mice, and then also looking at variation between different el uh, species of seal, so one, the northern elephant seal, and the other, the harbor seal, how that varies, um, how they, they get infected by similar parasites, how do their immune responses to those parasites differ. Um, and so, yeah, so we're not, we're not doing something super attenuated, but... Um, uh, we are hopefully trying to derive general principles. Got it. So I'm curious, and I know you said that your work hasn't necessarily directly touched touched coronavirus, but uh, you know, one thing I've been intrigued to read about is how the virus affects different species and different subsets of species. You know, different different groups differently. Like kids aren't really that susceptible. Adults are susceptible. Dogs seem to be able to carry it, maybe, but don't really get it. Cats 
get it, you know, uh, coughing tigers, etc. What are some of those principles you referred to that um, that influence whether or not a species or a group within a species is susceptible to a virus like this? Yeah. So in the case of in the case of say why why you know humans and probably non-human primates are going to be susceptible to coronavirus in the way that say dogs and cats might not be is is really it's actually going to be probably mostly down to the molecular biology of the virus. So so the virus is going to have certain receptors on the surfaces of cells that it's going to use to invade those cells. Um, and although because we have you know shared common ancestry with all these species, we have we have sort of proteins that are serving the same role and that, that have the same evolutionary origin. Their structures are going to differ potentially in you know maybe small ways or maybe large ways that might alter the ability of the virus to invade cells. Um, and really small changes can make a big world of difference um, for the ability of, uh, of a virus to invade a cell. Um, and so that might be you know, a reason why you know, people will be differing in their susceptibility to, to coronavirus because maybe the, the, uh, whatever receptors coronavirus targets on cell surface are less sort of uh, slightly less structurally you know, good for the interaction for the invasion. Um, and they'll be, you know, so different that the receptors, that the virus can't bind to the cell in, you know, other species. Um, and there will be other factors as well, such as um, differences in immune uh, response strength, which are probably going to matter. Um, so, you know, if you can mount a really rapid um, immune response, you might be able to sort of basically defeat the virus, even if it's exposed to the, to the virus, it won't be able to establish itself. Um, that might come with other problems. Um, uh, so usually if you have a really strong immune system, you're also vulnerable to your immune system inflicting damage upon you, but, um, but you know, that might prevent you from getting infected in the first place, and so that can also produce heterogeneity between people in getting infected. Um, and so that's the sort of thing that might matter maybe more for explaining differences between individuals and then when you're looking for differences between species, differences between populations, you might start to think about maybe some of these more fundamental things about the interaction of the virus with the host itself. Got it. So, I mean, you tell me if I'm completely misunderstanding the object of your research. Um, but to take just a wild gander here, you ideally would want to be able to find a similar set of immune responses between different species or within a species and then be able to say, okay, well, based on this, what would kind of the justification evolutionarily be for this? So why has this specific response continued to gain prevalence within a population? And then you can make some educated guess about why that might be. Yeah, um, or, or well, actually, I have to say that my hypotheses are most, mostly about, I'm guessing why I think they're different between two species, but, but equally, we might sort of be interested in, for a couple of species, so I would predict that species that have similar demographies, you know, similar schedules of uh, reproduction and similar rates of mortality across their life would have similar immune systems. Um, that's going to depend on the epidemiology, but broadly speaking, I would make that prediction, right? And so, therefore, I would be saying, oh, well, selection, 
depression is acting on, you know, the relationship between immunity and, and the demography here to produce the same immune system in disparate species, or as the case may be, because these species differ in their mating system or because these species differ in their life history. I think that they should have different immune systems and I think they show up different in these ways. Um, and so, yeah, so, but you're basically, yeah, uh, you're basically right. Got it. So, so a hypothesis you could test is a species that has a very, very short reproductive cycle maybe has more variability in the types, like the immune, like the level of like immunity, like how strong the immune system is essentially, because you're doing it so quickly, it's better to like have that variability. Whereas something that maybe like the, the mom will only have like one or two kids, like you want actually a really, really narrow band of like immune response because like you only have one chance to get it right. I'm not saying that's what, that would be one thing you could I mean, find. It's, yeah, it's pretty reasonable. Uh, I mean, certainly you, you expect, you know, one thing that we do know is that, um, is that you, you would expect immune sort of function to be different for, so pregnant women have different immune function and immune responses for women who aren't pregnant. Um, and so, you know, that's absolutely something. And, and we would expect, yeah, differences based on, you know, how many times do you reproduce, um, you know, so organisms like, like a salmon, right? Salmon reproduce once in their life and then they die. Um, and you sort of, you think that, like, that might actually lead to differences in what their immune system should look like compared to an organism that might reproduce several times across the lifespan. Because if you're a salmon, you really got to make it to the end of your, to, to that reproductive time. Like, you can't be, you know, even if you're, like, kind of limping, you know, it's better to limp to, to the spawn than to not be there at all. Um, and so, you know, we think that could possibly be, be relevant here. Got it. So now if I if we look at COVID, for example, mm-hmm. what do you think people, or, or if, you know, if your subject was humans um, and you were looking at the immune response to COVID, what are kind of the, the questions you would be answering and are there any answers to those questions? I know a big one is like, we're still pretty unclear if you actually become immune to COVID or if, you know, you'll be able to catch it a second time? Yeah, so, um, funnily enough, I was just looking at, so, so, but just the one that you were asking about with, um, but, you know, whether people can be immune to COVID, so there's actually a study which a preprint just went online earlier today, um, basically a paper just went online earlier today, um, from folks at Mount Sinai, um, which uh, basically finds, you know, reasonably long last in the New York City region, finds uh, antibodies that last, you know, for, for a while. Um, and so people do seem like they're able to develop some sort of, some level of immunity to it. But one of the things that, that my group um, has been interested in and, and my advisor really spends a lot of time thinking about is immunopathology, which is when the immune system attacks the host. Um, and she's done a whole bunch of sort of work uh, sort of developing our understanding of immune, why immunopathology might exist um, and, uh, you know, what it might be sort of a consequence of um, and how it might restrain sort of the, the level of the immune response that you're in, that, that, that uh, 
an organism might might have. Um, and so we've been really interested in uh, some sort of results that we're seeing where people are seem to be dying of you'll you've probably seen the head the term cytokine storms, um, which is basically uh, a sort of a, a term for when the immune system regulatory processes lose control and it produces a immune overreaction. This um, is what decimated young people during the Spanish flu. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so we that's something we we've had a couple of um, presentations in our lab meeting about um, sort of cytokine storms and thinking about how the immune system can serve as indicators for understanding uh, someone's prognosis or and whether someone is vulnerable to one of these. So uh, one cytokine, cytokines are immune signaling molecules, and one cytokine that's particularly interesting is one that's called interleukin six, which is and they all have you know stupid names like interleukin you know seventeen or interleukin one beta. Um, and I can't keep track of all of them. Um, but anyways, interleukin-6 is associated with uh, inflammation, um, which, you know, is unpleasant, um, but does is part of the immune response process. But if it gets out of control, um, then it, it can be a real problem. Um, and there's there have been some results that have suggested that interleukin-6 levels um, can be predictive of uh, mortality with coronavirus, if people have a more interleukin six, being more likely to die, and so, uh, so we'd be interested in well, what what immunologically is going wrong, um, such that people, you know, maybe they've controlled the the virus properly, and the and the level of virus in their body is down, and it's on the way down, but something something sort of slips, and the immune system just sort of uh, loses loses control. Um, or I say loses control, gets out of control. Um, and so, so that's, that's a sort of example of the type of question we'd be, we'd be interested in is, is why is the, the body losing control and can we predict what that might be and use that to sort of tailor our treatment? So, for example, could we administer something that blocks the action of IL-6 um, in a routine 6? And I think some people have started trialing that, I want to say. Um, for a variety of reasons, blocking cytokines is not something that's done very frequently. Basically, it's really hard to guess what you know, what kind of dose you should be doing. But um, but yeah, I mean, th- those sorts of things are are of interest to us because we want to understand when the immune system is you know is is not behaving as we would quite like it to, um, and then using that as sort of for understanding what might be therapeutic options is also of interest. Although I should say especially myself, I don't come from an immunology background. I come from an ecology and evolutionary biology background. And so for me, this is obviously interesting, but, um, but I'm not tremendously knowledgeable. Right. You, you would be more interested if the, the suggestion was, hey, maybe this isn't like a failing of the body, right? Maybe it's <clears throat> specifically trying to, you know, like, I don't think this is likely, but maybe there's a world in which it's actually better off to kill the host quickly so that like it doesn't spread the disease more in the population right like that could be yeah. one reason why this trait is you know advantageous mm-hmm. i i highly doubt uh, that and i hope not but that maybe yeah, you could explain it it's i mean in theory you could imagine it i, I think i had a uh, i actually had a student 
so I, I, I have done some te- been a teaching assistant, and I had a student write a paper with uh, with an argument that was sort of along those lines, um, but uh, it, that that would probably not be particularly plausible that the host would do that um, for a variety of reasons. Um, it's hypothetically possible, but um, but it, but most evolutionary theory would suggest it's not super likely. But there is a possibility that a parasite could want that. Mm. Um, mm. Could actually want to accelerate it, depending on how much transmission, basically. I mean, this is, folks, it's grim. Uh, when you talk about infectious disease, it's, you're always getting to something grim. Um, basically, if, if there, you can get a lot of transmission from, per, from, a, from a body, from a corpse, um, then there might be circumstances in which it's advantageous just go ahead and um, and kill your host. Um, there's a there's a lot of really interesting literature regarding uh, becoming one of those people who's like there's really interesting scientific literature. And I'm like boy, uh, yikes! But um, there's a lot of really interesting scientific literature about when a parasite should want to be more dangerous to its host and when it should not. Mm. Um, and so you can get a lot of interesting effects there that might interface with the immune system in intriguing ways. Got it. Got it. So, last question for you, Alec. Mm-hmm. The student who wrote a paper with an argument similar to Adam's, what grade did they get on that paper? Because we're going to give Adam uh, Adam the same grade on his on his hypothesis. I think he got like an eighty nine or something. Um, yeah, Adam, pretty good. Yeah, eighty nine at Princeton. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, like I that's mean, like a hundred and ten at Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's one of those things where. Well, I, I don't. I don't think I'm acclaimed as a friendly grader um, uh, amongst my uh, amongst my students. Boy, their their midterm was brutal. Um, their average grade was below seventy, um, which I maintain. Oh fair. my god, um, Alec, you're so mean. Well, so so Alec here, you know, if you could give extra credit for for telling them to go out and you know stay current to something, what should our <laughs> listeners be? paying attention to what kind of what is like the the study everyone is waiting to come out around Ooh. covid i you know i think the study that that a lot of people are waiting for and people have sort of tried to produce this and then there have been methodological problems with some of the ones that have been produced but i think the ones that people are really looking for are um about uh, basically, how prevalent, how many people get the vi- who get the virus uh, don't show any symptoms at all. Um, and a corollary of that is how infectious are people who don't get symptoms versus people who do get symptoms. Um, because, you know, we really, one thing that we're really interested in, and uh, fingers crossed, some folks at Princeton are setting up a project on this, um, we're really interested in you know, how many people are actually being exposed to this and developing antibodies against it, but without any real, uh, but without ever really noticing or having any symptoms at all. Um, we think that there's a pretty decent proportion of people, but knowing more about that will help us understand, you know, how the virus is spreading through the population. Um, and whether, you know, there's, you know, there's maybe some hope that, that things aren't going to be as bad as, as, you know, they might be. I will, I will take this moment to say, um, you know, be very careful, wear a mask, et cetera, and so forth. Um, it's, 
you know, it's it's hard to see this going. I don't think that we should be relaxing lockdowns, um, or at the very least, we should be very smart about it, although public parks should probably be open to maintain social distancing. But, um, but you know, it's, uh, I, I would say I don't agree with the vice president's suggestion that they might wind down the coronavirus task force. Um, there's a lot of stuff still to be known, for sure. Got it. Well, Alec, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, it's, thank you, Matt. It's great you, to have a bona fide scientist and not just um, me. Armchair well, scientist I, Adam Brodheim. Uh, if, I, if I fail my uh, my generals next week, you might regret having me, but I've been assured that's unlikely. Yeah, you know, Alec, I lived with you for three years, and I am pretty, pretty certain that you are going to do just fine. (laughs) Well, Alec, thanks again, and uh, talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Yep. Great to see you guys. Bye-bye. Wow, I I thought that was so interesting and really just dove into the particulars. Um, We've got to have him on the show again. Sorry sorry for the listeners if you couldn't follow, but boy was that... That's so really, interesting. Really interesting. I think I kind of understand what he does. Yeah. I, a little bit. A little bit. Alec is so much smarter than me, it's not even funny. And so I appreciate when he stoops down to my level. From his very... He's like 6'8", so, you know, literally and figuratively. It's true. When he stayed here last fall, I was very glad that our couch is as long as it is. Yeah, he stayed on my couch previous, my old couch in our old apartment, which was about a third of the size. I've, and he I've did also not fit. slept on that couch. That's true, that's true. And you didn't fit, he definitely, definitely didn't fit. So we'll have to have him on the show again. All right, another day. Season two. Season it's going two. pretty well. It's going, yeah, this was a great interview. All right, listeners, we'll see you tomorrow. This has been Corona Pod. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay healthy. Corona Pod is brought to you by Momo the Cat. Follow her at Momo underscore is underscore a underscore cat.